Hello, I'm Emmy Paternostro, and you're listening to The Correspondent, a platform for unbreaking news. Today, I'll be reading a story by Progress Correspondent Rutger Bregman. Writing first for a Dutch audience, Rutger calls for us all to fight against rising sea levels that are sinking the Netherlands deeper into water, but also to fight against ourselves, against our apathy towards the climate disaster. The trouble with the Dutch is they are so self-effacing, so modest, that they've stopped believing their own history, said Johan van Veen, who lived from 1893 to 1959. There is a story that needs to be told, and it needs to be told now. It is the story of Johan van Veen, engineer, father of the Delta Works, one of the greatest men in Dutch history. And yet, his name is virtually unknown. In the village of Outhausermaden, in the northern Dutch province of Ronengen, stands a small monument in Johann's honor, a grey bust bearing little resemblance to the man himself, erected between a car park and a supermarket, one of the ugliest spots in the Netherlands, according to his biographer. Johann van Veen called himself Dr. Cassandra after the Greek princess whose warnings of Troy's destruction went unheeded. As an engineer at the Netherlands Directorate General for Public Works and Water Management, Johan predicted the devastating North Sea flood of 1953. Not once, but repeatedly, for 20 long years. Yes, that can happen in Holland, he told the reporter for the weekly Elisvier in 1952, because people just don't get it. Dismissing him as a panic monger, the magazine editor scrapped the whole interview. Johan's story is the story of Holland. It's the story of a small nation on the North Sea that by rights should be deep beneath the waves. A nation that frowns down on high achievers and has elevated rudeness to a virtue. A nation of shopkeepers who go around quibbling and complaining, grumbling and groaning, insisting up and down that they won't, they can't, and they mustn't, right up until they unexpectedly pull off the impossible. But disaster has to strike first. On the 31st of January, 1953, the National Weather Agency forecast is overcast with rain, heavy south-southwesterly wind, with occasional strong gusts. Nothing unusual, in other words. It's just another winter's day, a day to stay indoors. All across the Netherlands, families huddle around wood stoves and tune into De Family Dorsni, or An Ordinary Family, a popular radio serial. It's cozy, too, at the village pub in Nieuwerkirk on Den Eichel, just a few miles northeast of Rotterdam, which is a buzz inside with locals laughing, drinking, dancing. All of a sudden, a man bursts through the door. It's the river. The river is too high. Newarkirk sits in a polder, an area of land reclaimed from the sea, along with a branch of the Eichel River. Separating it from the river is a high dike called the Schielands Hohejidek, which has protected the polder's inhabitants for centuries. The polder is nearly seven meters below sea level, and Newarkirk is at the very lowest point in the Netherlands. Beyond it lies a densely populated region stretching from Gouda to The Hague, from Rotterdam to Leiden, a region that's home to more than three million people. If the dike at Newarkirk fails, half of Holland will drown. Realizing there's not a moment to lose, the village mayor, Jaap Vohelar, gives orders to sound the alarm and for everyone at the pub to start hauling sandbags. He himself rushes into the darkness, shouting at spots along the river where the dike needs to be reinforced. Dozens of men arrive, but as soon as they feel the ground give way beneath their boots, 
see the water cresting over the dike and realize it could collapse at any moment. Many turn and run. All the while, the water continues to rise. Rain, sleet, and hail pour from the sky. A cutting northwesterly wind sends waves surging against the slope. Here and there, whole sections of the inner dike wash away. And then it happens. At 5.30 a.m., Mr. Claybrooker, a machinist, sees an entire length of dike give way, leaving a gaping hole 15 meters wide. Water rushes in through the gap and floods down into the deep polder, heading straight for the metropolitan heart of Holland. At that moment, Captain Ari Avagron is aboard his barge, the two brothers. He moored at Newerkirk earlier that evening, hoping it would be safe. But suddenly, the mayor appears beside his boat. Shouting to be heard above the storm, he directs Evergrun to steer his 18-meter barge into the dike. He wants the captain to plug the hole. Horrified, Evergrun refuses. It doesn't take much imagination to picture his boat, with him on it, taking a nosedive into the polder. But the mayor is determined. He commandeers the boat in the name of the queen. The captain gives in. As plans go, it's a long shot. Trying to close a burst dike with a boat is the kind of stunt that would fail 99 times out of 100, the district water board engineer will say later. But in the moment, there's no time for consideration. Evergrun navigates into the raging river and positions his bow perpendicular to the dike. Then, propeller turning, he starts to pivot towards the gap. The boat swings in like a floodgate, closer and closer until the powerful current sucks it right into the dike. You'd almost think the two brothers was made for this purpose. Just a tiny bit shorter, and it wouldn't have worked. Even the captain can hardly believe it. Just like that, the hole in the dike is plugged. Ari Evergrun will go down in Dutch history as the savior of Holland, albeit a reluctant one. My barge was there, he says afterwards, and there was nobody else to do it. In the early hours of February 1st, 1953, the dikes protecting Holland broke in more than 500 places. Over 1,290 square kilometers of the country were flooded, including almost the whole province of Zeeland. Thousands of homes and farms were destroyed, 100,000 people had to be evacuated, and 1,836 died. But it could have been much worse. On that first day of February, the spring tide was low, wind speeds were unexceptional, and the water level in the Rhine and Meuse rivers wasn't particularly high. At that time of the year, the water should have been at least a meter higher, noted the Elsevier journalist whose 1952 interview with Johann van Veen never ran. In that case, it would have flooded everywhere. Instead, the rivers had absorbed much of the sea surge. Over at the Directorate General for Public Works and Water Management, Johann investigated what would have happened had Captain Evergrun failed. Answer, the hole in the Schielands Hochegideck would have torn wide open, making the breach impossible to close. Within a week, most of the province of Zoutholland, the lowest-lying part of the country, would have been underwater. After 26 days, the sea would have been lapping at the fringes of Amsterdam. The flood! The flood! I can neither think of nor do anything else, Johan wrote to a British friend some weeks after the disaster. I know how close the whole of the Netherlands came to absolute ruin. Not a camel, but a whole herd of elephants passed through the eye of the needle. Frankly, it's unbelievable the middle of the country still exists. Climate change is something that tends to feel abstract. So the planet will be 4 degrees warmer in 2100? Is that a bad thing? It doesn't sound all that terrible. And if the sea level goes up 3 meters, so what? It doesn't feel like much. 
So let me make this threat more concrete. The very existence of the Netherlands is at stake. There's a possibility our children will have to abandon cities like The Hague and Delft, Rotterdam and Amsterdam, Leiden and Harlem, that centuries of culture, heritage, and history will be lost. That's not what I say. That's what the scientific successors of the engineer Johan van Veen say. Reading their work, you don't have to look far for a Dr. Cassandra. In fact, these days, there's a whole legion of Cassandras. For this story, I interviewed seven Dutch scientists, all sea-level experts, and I was shocked at how candidly they described scenarios in which the Netherlands will be forced to sacrifice vast areas of land to the sea. Say you start having kids now, says Dr. Martin Kleinhans, a professor of physical geography at Utrecht University. Then you're talking about people who could lose their homeland, who won't be Netherlanders because the Netherlands will be gone. That's what's at stake here. Dr. Kim Cohen, assistant professor of geography at Utrecht, shares his fear. I think this country can cope with a sea level rise of two meters. But three, four, or five meters? That's doubtful. The measures needed would be draconian. At that point, I think we'd start sacrificing cities. For a time, it was assumed that the sea level around the Netherlands would rise at most 85 centimeters by the year 2100. But in recent years, that figure has crept up steadily. Where 10 years ago, the Royal Netherlands Meteorological Institute was still calculating in decimeters or tenths of a meter, now they're talking about whole meters. If the world doesn't cut greenhouse gas emissions fast enough, the Netherlands will face a sea level rise approaching 3 meters by 2100. And a hundred years after that, five to eight meters. It's really terrifying, says Martin Kleinhans. Well and truly terrifying. Without trying to match myself with him, I feel pushed to shoulder Van Veen's role as Dr. Cassandra. I'm noticing a sense of despair among colleagues in the field, especially polar ice researchers. For years, we've all been saying this is happening, and the world still won't listen properly. One of those polar ice researchers is Michiel van den Broeke professor of polar meteorology at Utrecht University. When I repeat Kleinhans' words to him, the line goes quiet briefly. Then, look, Martin's a great colleague, but he's also very vocal. I've promised myself not to go along with the chorus of people saying, we're not being heard, nothing's being done. You've got to keep the rules of science and policymaking separate. In June 2018, Van de co-authored a groundbreaking article published in the journal Nature, revealing that the South Pole ice sheet is melting faster than previously thought. In the past decade, as much as three times faster. That's bad news for the Netherlands. Melting land ice not only equals higher sea levels, but as it warms, water also expands. What is more, if ice at the South Pole melts, we in the Netherlands are at particularly high risk. That's because right now the gravity of the miles-thick ice cap attracts gigantic quantities of water. This gravitational force is so powerful that the water actually slopes upwards against the ice, like a vast mountain of water. But now that this ice sheet is melting, the gravitational force is diminishing. So water at the South Pole is subsiding and, like a seesaw, the ocean at the north end of the Earth is lifting up. The north end? That's us. Van der Broeke stresses, that the scientific models have a large margin of uncertainty, especially when it comes to the speed of future sea level rises. But the risks are big too. Roderick van de Vol, professor of sea level change and coastal impacts in Utrecht, is most worried about the tipping points. Specifically, the point when glaciers at the South Pole become so destabilized that the melting can no longer be stopped, no matter what we do. We don't know precisely where these points lie, but it could be as soon as the next 20 years, he says. Once the tipping point is reached, 
the ensuing sea level rise will be measurable in whole meters. That much is certain. Kim Cohen, the geographer, drew me a map of what the Netherlands would look like in 2300 if we lose this war against the water. In Cohen's map, a large portion of the Netherlands appears submerged underwater. When I saw this map for the first time, I was reminded of something Johan van Veen once said. There will come a day when, with a sigh of relief, we will sacrifice this country to the waves. The man who called himself Dr. Cassandra had always been a loner. At university, he refused to join any of the student societies. He had few friends and went around in wrinkled shirts and threadbare jackets. One time, by then he was working at the directorate, he arrived at the office looking distracted. Mr. Van Veen, a colleague cried out, you haven't any socks on. It was when he was by himself, on the water, doing research, that Johann was truly in his element. Search and measure was his motto. For his thesis, he walked the whole length of the English coastline near Kent, interviewing 50 locals along the way. Harbour masters, fishermen, lighthouse keepers, old folks. That is how he discovered the South Foreland Lighthouse stood a good 10 meters closer to the cliff edge than it had in 1793. As head of the directorate's research department, Johann worked incessantly. Evenings, nights, weekends. Which is not to say his superiors were pleased with him. Besides a stiff disposition, Johann had a problem with authority, and that's putting it mildly. During the Nazi occupation, he had amused himself by taking out his motor sailor, sporting patriotically orange curtains, and sailing it back and forth in front of the German troops for fun. At lunch, he made a big production of displaying his equally bright orange crockery on deck. Tact and diplomacy were wholly wasted on Johann. He did not suffer fools gladly, which, in his view, was almost everyone. Once, during a conference, he sneered at the director general, his boss. Sir, you so thoroughly don't understand anything about it that I can't possibly answer you. In June 1946, Johann brought that same boss a thick report on the poor state of the dikes in Zealand. Wordlessly, the director took it, went to a cupboard, put it inside, locked the door, and told Johann to sod off. In January of 1948, Johann mentioned this incident to his doctor. I wanted to ask him, he later wrote in his journal, if he could give the director general some poison, as that would have been most helpful to me. Outside of the Netherlands, however, Johann enjoyed a growing reputation. His reports were widely read and hydraulic engineers came to the hog from all over the world simply to speak to him. But at home, Johann had few fans. Mostly, he was dismissed as an alarmist. Even by the Dutch water management secretary, who, in response to parliamentary questions around this time, wrote, No one need worry about the question whether they shall wake up one day to see the water level has risen above the dikes. In reality, the situation was becoming increasingly dire. Already in a state of disrepair, the dikes had been further damaged by Allied bombings during the Second World War. Efforts were made to patch them up in places, but responsibility for water management was fragmented across 263 separate bodies. Moreover, many of the water districts were underfunded, plus the bureaucracy was maddening, inspiring Johann to pen this satirical verse. Lord, give us that we shall come to no decisions this day and bring us no responsibilities, but lead us so that by all our acts and omissions, wholly new and utterly unnecessary agencies will be created. All this time, Dr. Cassandra continued to warn that far more extensive measures were needed to protect the Netherlands from the next storm surge, and that another storm surge was sure to strike. The only question was when. Johann even drafted an ambitious plan during these years, proposing massive dams to close the mouths of the country's rivers. Dams on a scale the world had never seen. The result, a veritable delta plan, 
was lying on the Secretary of Transport and Water Management Jakob Algara's desk on the 29th of January, 1953. 48 hours later, the dikes broke. How was it that Johann saw what nobody else did? One factor undoubtedly helped. He knew his history. The engineer was well aware that the Netherlands had suffered countless storm surges in the past. On average, 16 per century, such as back in 1170, when the water tore across the dunes at Den Helder and ripped Tessel Island off the Dutch mainland, and the All Saints Flood of 1570, which left at least 20,000 people dead and washed away half of the coastal village of Egmond on Zee, or the Flood of 1808, after which King Louis Bonaparte wondered if saving the province of Zeeland was really worth the expense. Johann was well acquainted with the history of Holland's age-old struggle against the sea. He knew it was no coincidence that the country's oldest political bodies were its waterboards, presided over by its earliest administrators, the dike reeves, that the Dutch had invented polder windmills to drain the land in the 15th century and build the mill complex a kinderdijk in the 18th century with 20 windmills to pump 50,000 liters of water every minute. In time, the Dutch drained a grand total of 4,000 polders, creating a country of which one quarter lies under sea level. In 1916, after yet another storm surge, the Afschladdijk, or Enclosure Dike, was built. A 32-kilometer dam that still protects the northern half of the country against the North Sea. But Johann also knew the Dutch are forgetful. The longer the sea kept quiet, the louder the old objections. Won't, can't, mustn't. The trouble with the Dutch, Johann wrote, is they are so self-effacing, so modest, that they've stopped believing their own history. But after the 1st of February, 1953, everything changed. In the months following the disaster, the breached dikes couldn't be sealed fast enough. When the last one was repaired at Auerkuk op Schauendiveland on November 6th, people all across the country hung out their flags in celebration. There was a great sense of unity and no interest in laying blame. In fact, it was widely believed to have been the will of God. But people did realize that Johann van Veen had been right all along. Everywhere he went, they whispered, did you know he's called Dr. Cassandra? Suddenly, the whole country wanted to know all about the megalomaniacal plan Johann had offered the state secretary just two days before the flood. Abruptly, the won'ts and the can'ts and the mustn'ts fell silent, and the Netherlands embarked on the largest infrastructural project in its entire history. When the plan for the Delta Works was ratified by the Dutch House of Representatives on the 5th of November, 1957, construction had already started. Foreign journalists were astonished at the country's determination. What those crazy engineers now represent, wrote the Saturday Evening Post, is a Maginot line of three dams. This concept has been around for a while, but as one Dutchman said, we first had to get angry to forget that it was impossible. Headline of that article? The Dutch strike back against the sea. The cost of the Delta Works was budgeted in 1958 at 3.3 billion guilders, amounting to 20% of the country's gross domestic product at the time, about 140 billion euros in today's money but it wound up costing quite a lot more. This owed to controversy which arose in the 1960s over the plan to close off the Eastern Scheldt estuary. Environmentalists feared for the fish, while the fishermen feared for their jobs. In the end, all sides sat down together to achieve a consensus for the greater good, following a decision-making model and proud Dutch problem-solving tradition aptly known as poldering. This ultimately left to the Eastern Scheldt storm surge barrier to be redesigned with huge sluice gates that would close only when needed representing an unprecedented and very pricey feat of engineering. Where the Netherlands had been considered stodgy and old-fashioned right up through the 50s, now those days were well and truly past. 
The Dutch have stopped being dull, a British journalist wrote in 1967 of the land of football legend Johan Cruyff, the anarchist Provo movement, and the monumental Delta Works. Johan van Veen was proclaimed a master of the floods, and American engineers even hailed the Dutch Delta Works as one of the seven wonders of the modern world. But at home, Johan van Veen was as unpopular as ever. The fact is, we Dutch don't care much for heroes. Few things are as suspicious to us as success. If you can't help being a high achiever, at least do everyone a favor and keep it to yourself. That was fine with Johan. He didn't like effusive compliments. And he didn't trust foreign journalists. What do they know about Dutch history? The Delta Works themselves, not surprisingly, manifested that same Dutch no-nonsense pragmatism. The service buildings were functional gray blocks, where Americans would have erected grandiose monuments and the French would have inscribed them with solemn mottos, the Dutch left it at water, wind, and concrete, and then promptly forgot all about their wonder of the world. These days, it's mostly foreign tourists who marvel at the Eastern Scheldt Barrier with its 65 pillars, each as big as a cathedral, and the Maesland Barrier with its two swinging Eiffel Towers and the biggest ball joints in the world. The Dutch themselves are less interested. At the Haringvliet Dam, with its 17 sluices, the information signs are worn and weathered, the letters are falling off, and the artificial island of Nielce Jans, made to aid construction of the Eastern Scheldt Barrier, is now home to a fun park owned by a Spanish multinational. And what about the father of the Delta Works, Johan van Veen? He too is all but forgotten. Not a single dam, bridge, or dike was ever named in his honor. The cabinet containing his life's work long stood collecting dust at the directorate, but has since been thrown away. That cabinet held the history of the Delta Works, says Willem van der Ham, author of an impressive biography about the engineer. It was a national heritage, but it's gone now. Meanwhile, the sea level is rising. According to the Dutch Meteorological Institute, even if every country in the world fulfills its commitments and we manage to limit global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, even then the Netherlands could face a sea level rise of 2 meters by 2100. And if the planet warms beyond that to 4 degrees in 2100, we're almost certain to exceed that 2 meter mark, coming out at 5 to 8 meters in 2200. The Delta Works were designed to accommodate a rise of only 40 centimeters. You do the math. So the Netherlands is facing a challenge that's unprecedented in scale. At present, almost 70% of the population live in flood-prone areas, and that percentage is only growing. The densest part of the country, around the major cities in the West, home to over 8 million people, is like a giant bathtub, sinking a little deeper year by year as the water rises around it. According to the current models, it will really start to kick in around 2050, says Marjolin Hasnut, a water management researcher. My kids will be the same age then as I am now. It's not very far off. All the experts I talk to think the Netherlands can still cope with the sea that's two meters higher. That is, provided we take measures so extreme they'll make the Delta Works look like child's play, like building the biggest pumping stations the world has ever seen to drain water from low-lying rivers into the higher-lying sea 24 hours a day, seven days a week. To reinforce the Dutch coastline, a fleet of dredgers would have to be permanently stationed in the North Sea to keep replenishing the shoreline, requiring 25 times as much sand as is already used now. And that's just the beginning. If the Earth warms more than 2 degrees Celsius, sea levels will rise higher and the Dutch will have to think even bigger still. Johan van Veen already imagined a colossal dam stretching from Norway to England. Now there are proposals for a vast seawall going from northern France to Denmark. Would that work? Well, it depends who you ask. 
Humans are more likely to grow gills, geographer Martin Kleinhans responds dryly. The Utrecht University professor is among the Cassandras who think it's game over for Holland if the sea level rises more than two meters. Only at university engineering departments in places like Delft will you find folks who think they can survive that, the kind who believe in a makeable world. So I decided to give one of them a call. Bas Jankman teaches hydraulic engineering at Delft University of Technology. Turns out, he's one of the youngest professors there. That's no accident, he tells me. The older generation is poorly represented in this field. They mostly went into ICT, project management, and banking, says Jankman. Those jobs paid more. Where engineers used to dream of building bridges and dams, now they construct complex financial products and the algorithms behind online ads. In recent times, the tide seems to be turning. Jankman himself is part of a new generation of engineers who are eager to build. Looking at my students now, most stay in this field, he says. Talking to Bas Jankman, it's hard not to get swept up in his outpouring of plans and ideas. He stresses that there are plenty of options, even if the sea rises more than two meters. For starters, Holland could go on the offense and spray up some islands to break incoming waves. Those islands could then double as wind parks, or we can move Schiphol Airport out to sea. If that's not enough, a huge ring dike could be built linking all those islands, resulting in an inland sea off Holland's west coast. Admittedly, the impact of a plan like this would not be pretty for marine life. Dutch ecologists are known to say the country has suffered two environmental disasters, the Afschlad Dyke and the Delta Works. But Jonkman isn't deterred by this criticism. Nature is dynamic and can recover, he says. I'm used to thinking in solutions, not problems. But by now, at least one thing is clear. However widely their views differ, ecologists and engineers agree on the big issue. We have to do everything in our power to prevent a sea level rise exceeding two meters, whatever the cost. First of all, by eliminating all greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible, not just in Holland, but worldwide. And our new Delta Works will have to go beyond dams and dikes, bridges and islands. A Delta plan for modern times also has to include solar panels and wind parks, mega batteries and high-speed trains. This realization finally seems to be dawning in The Hague. On May 28, 2019, the Dutch Senate passed a climate bill pledging to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 49% in the year 2030 relative to 1990, and by at least 95% in 2050. Is that a lot? Is it fast? Let me make the challenge more concrete. The Netherlands has to take 8 million buildings off natural gas to replace 9 million cars with electric or hydrogen-powered models, to scale up its power grid times 3 to fill a quarter of the North Sea with windmills, to install 75 million solar panels, to plant 1,000 square kilometers of forest. And on top of that, we'll need a ton of technologies that have yet to be invented. In short, we need to embark on a countrywide renovation on the biggest scale ever. Meanwhile, our nation of shopkeepers is still haggling over the price of this revolution. One party leader has claimed a trillion euros, Journalists who check their facts put it closer to 500 to 700 billion. Either way, it's a jaw-dropping sum. We're talking 70 to 100% of Holland's gross domestic product, or GDP. That's five times as high as the Delta works. True, many technologies will get cheaper when rolled out on a larger scale. And true, the cost can be spread out over 30 years to an annual price tag of merely 3% of GDP, roughly what the whole country spends on holidays per year. But still, when people start talking about how expensive the energy transition will be, they're absolutely right. Of course it's going to be expensive. How could it not be? 
Not since 1953 has the Netherlands faced the challenge of this magnitude. Now is not the time to pinch pennies. Among Dutch dike reefs, there's an old saying, give us today our daily bread and every so often a flood. Of course, it rhymes in Dutch. And it's true. It seems we've always needed a disaster to shake us up. In 1916, it took the inundation of the northern part of the country to make us build the Afschlad dike. And in 1953, the south had to be drowning before we embarked on the Delta Works. So, will we wait once more for the worst to happen? For the sea to swallow half the country before we start grouching about expensive heat pumps and unsightly windmills? Can only a disaster wake us up to the fact that we need to pull off a revolution, transform the entire economy, and blaze a trail for the world? One thing is certain. If we want to hold on to the Netherlands, we, the Dutch people, have to fight for it. We have to fight against the water, but also against ourselves. Against our apathy, our thriftiness. Sure, we may be a nation of quibblers and complainers, of grumblers and groaners. A nation that could be willfully blind, even when the truth has been flashing in front of us for 20-odd years. Elsevier magazine, which dismissed Johan van Veen as a panic monger back in 1952, now talks of the panic factory called climate change. But we're also a nation that can rise above itself, that's capable of incredible feats. Not because we yearn for a pedestal or a statue to be heroized by future generations. That will never happen in any case. Here, you're lucky to get an ugly bust outside of a supermarket. No, we can do this because we're a nation that has perfected the art and the politics of poldering. Because we can turn water into land. Because, as we're so fond of saying, God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands. And because our future, once again, is in our own hands. What you can do. Most important of all is that we take action together. But if you want some tips for changes you can make now, this checklist can help. Share this story with a friend, a colleague, a family member. Try to make your home more eco-friendly. Insulate walls, floors, and roofs. Stop using natural gas and switch to a heat pump for heating and to electricity for cooking. Buy only energy-efficient appliances in the EU Class A++. Switch to LED light bulbs. Get solar panels to generate your own energy. Join a local renewable energy cooperative. Share your car with other people or ditch it and commute by bike or train instead. Take holidays closer to home and avoid flying as much as possible. Eat more vegetable and plant proteins. Skip meat altogether at least several days a week. Better yet, go vegetarian. Also, plan meals ahead so you'll waste less. Pick a profession and look for a job that fits with the sustainable, circular economy of the future. Ask your employer, your landlord, your pension fund, your bank, and your politicians what they are doing to make the world greener. Thank you for listening to the story. I'm Eliza Anyangwe, Managing Editor of The Correspondent. Members of The Correspondent can now access our journalism in our brand new audio app, available on Android and on iPhone. If you're not yet a member of The Correspondent, this is an excellent moment to join our movement for unbreaking news. Head over to thecorrespondent.com forward slash join and decide whatever you would like to pay for your membership. Happy listening.